Make no mistake, there will be a trial, and when that trial ends, senators will have to decide if they believe Donald John, Donald John Trump incited the erection, insurrection against the United States. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hello, everyone. On the morning that we recorded this, the latest Golden Globe nominations were announced. And I wanted to bring this up this episode because the the good thing to do, the right thing to do, the cool thing to do would be to say that I don't care about this. That would be a lie, though, wouldn't it? It would be a lie. And it would be a lie on a couple of different levels. Because first of all, I do care. I am curious. I looked at the list because I wanted to see what got nominated. Award shows like this are interesting as a reflection of what Hollywood thinks its mission is, the way Hollywood wants to be viewed, the the sort of things that Hollywood is putting forward as this, this is us. This is the best of us and the golden globes which are you know obviously a sham organization it's the hollywood foreign press which are like a bunch of people who like write like one clickbait article a year each about like oh uh, we saw a side boob they publish it on some website somewhere that's what the golden globes are and and they take bribes allegedly really well i mean i don't know if you've ever heard this very famous story that in the early 1980s there was an actress named pia zadora who was a singer and actress. She married a billionaire. And the billionaire, he paid for her first movie. He funded the whole budget. And then he like flew out the Hollywood Foreign Press Association for like an all expenses paid trip to Las Vegas where they would get like first class service and Pia would give them a concert. And then guess who won Best New Star that year? It was Pia Zadora. (laughs) Anyway, I found this year's list of movies particularly interesting because so I'm going to tell you the nominees for Best Picture Drama. Right. A Michael and Us exclusive, folks. Here are your Golden Globe (laughs) nominees for 2021. It's Nomadland, Mank, Promising Young Woman, uh, Trial of the Chicago 7, and something called The Father, which I have no idea what that one is. Now, uh, I've seen only two of these movies, uh, was not particularly moved by either one of them, but I think it's interesting just because none of these seems to really have caught the zeitgeist. Maybe there there's someone out there who loved Trial of the Chicago 7, but I don't generally hear people talking about these movies. And this is a distorted year, right? Because there's no water cooler for us all to gather around. And Most of these movies, these are on big streaming giants who have no obligation to release their viewership numbers. So it's all it's all very abstract. And it feels like this kind of Orwellian campaign to like convince us that actually these movies really are catching the zeitgeist, whatever these movies are. You know, who are you going to believe? Us or your lion eyes? Well, I suppose there's an argument to be made, you know, COVID aside that, you know, the cultural power and influence of, of, of things like the Golden Globes to determine what gets canonized as culturally relevant or whatever, you know, that's kind of waned in this age of populist media. Well, theoretically, there are a lot more entertainment options out there. There are more entertainment options, but there's also like, I mean, for better and for worse, you know, there's a whole culture online that's sort of unmoored from officialdom when it comes to determining what is, you know, good or not good or why something's good, etc. And I suspect that has kind of you know, diminished the influence of things like the Academy Awards and the Golden Globes. Now, I want to tell you about this movie Nomadland, which is one of the two movies I saw. It stars Frances McDormand as a woman of a certain age who has been laid off from her job and is having trouble getting work. She works for a time in an Amazon warehouse, and in fact, they actually filmed some scenes at the Amazon warehouse. Uh, They don't make it look all that bad, to be honest. (laughs) 
And eventually she decides that she's going to embrace the open road. She's going to become a nomad. And I've seen some reviews of the movie that are kind of like, well, this is a film about like the death of the American dream, but also about like new possibilities on the horizon. And I find that very alarming. I find that very alarming if this is the movie that is meant to capture the zeitgeist. This is Hollywood's idea because this is the front runner this year. This is Hollywood's idea of the movie that captures the moment. An older woman becomes comfortable with the understanding that the American dream was a sham all along. So she decides to hit the open road and rediscover America. I mean, I haven't seen this movie, but she has, you know, she, so she is working in an Amazon warehouse and then decides to, to to leave and sort of go go Kerouac. Is that? That's right. I mean, she comes back to the warehouse at the end for a little bit and then she, she goes. Oh, OK. There's an amazing scene in this movie where she and her co-workers are all at this like lunch table in the Amazon warehouse and they're all chatting. And, you know, it's filmed in this like pseudo observational like kind of Terrence Malick influence style. <laughs> so the camera is kind of like catching fragments of their conversation. And like one of them's got a tattoo on her arm that has some like Smith's lyrics on it. And I can't remember exactly what the lyrics were, but they were words to the effect of home isn't a place. It's something I carry around with me. And now this is said at the Amazon warehouse in like the second or third scene of this movie. And so I think we could sort of interpret it as like the thesis statement of this film. I find that very alarming and tragic if that's the thesis statement of like Hollywood's statement on the zeitgeist. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, as to the idea that the American dream was a lie all along, I mean, it it wasn't necessarily a lie all along. It was something that was that was accomplished through organized labor. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's like anything that's, you know, that kind of mid-century prosperity that I, I suppose typifies what people think of when they now think of the quote-unquote American dream. You know, all of that, yeah, is enabled through, like, political struggle, you know, campaigning and and militancy by trade unions and and radical groups. I mean, that's basically what, I mean, it's a little reductive, but that's basically what produced the post-war prosperity that people are thinking of when they say the American dream, or at least made sure that that prosperity was more widely shared than, you know, it is today, for example. Well, Nomadland is being distributed by Fox Searchlight, whose parent company is now uh, Walt Disney. And, you know, they laid off something like 30,000 park workers this year. So they're fully embracing the nomad lifestyle. Like, this is actually interactive cinema, you know? You can <laughs> you can watch the movie, and then you can live it. This isn't uh, directly related, but you just reminded me. Um, uh, so in Canada, we have this thing called uh, Bell Let's Talk, which, uh, you know, is kind of, I mean... So Bell is one of like the two big telecom companies that has a monopoly here. Like if you want to use the internet at home, Bell and Rogers are kind of your two, uh, your two main options. And uh, they're sort of equally bad. And it's like you can get pissed off at one and then you you can seek vengeance by uh, going over to the other one. And then the same thing happens. And just like it's a it's kind of an endless cycle. But you know, some time ago, Bell figured out that it could carve a, a niche for itself as sort of a a, a corporate leader on the issue of mental health. And so they started this thing, Bell Let's Talk, which is like a, I mean, how does it work? I mean, basically you you tweet on the hashtag Bell Let's Talk, and then they donate a certain amount of money to something. That's right. And you share like your mental health experience Uh or your Uh your thoughts on the subject. You know, you you turn your stories into content. Right, right. So it's like a pretty ingenious corporate coup. And uh, I think the date of this year's Bell Let's Talk, you know, day was uh, January the 28th. And I just saw today uh, Bell laid off something like uh, 200 workers or something in in Toronto. My friend Zach Kotzer tweeted, they should change it to Bell Let's Talk in my office. (laughs) Piazzadora is 
the lonely lady. She's determined to take nothing less than everything Hollywood has to offer. We've got a super fun movie to discuss this week, and I do want to get to it pretty soon. But uh, there were a couple political things I wanted to discuss off the top. So there's a story, I guess, from yesterday in Politico. It's a report uh, headlined, House Dems Move to Yoke GOP to QAnon. And then there's a quote here. Uh, they can do QAnon or they can do college-educated voters. They cannot do both. What I love about this is the f- the first move is kind of on its face a good one, right? I mean, one of the criticisms that I've had, I mean, really for years of the Democrats and of the sort of whole kind of broader anti-Trump, uh, you know, mainstream anti-Trump coalition is, you know, this obsession, which really, I mean, it predates even Donald Trump being elected president. You know, this idea of this kind of popular front between the supposedly respectable conservatives and Republicans, you know, uh, your Bill Crystals, people like that, and liberals. It seems to me, you know, there are uh, many problems with that, but just on a strategic level, uh, one of the most obvious problems is that you're kind of bailing out the Republican Party, right? Instead of making the Republican Party as a whole wear Donald Trump, which not only is there a very good case to be made that uh, that's a perfectly fair thing to do, it also just makes good strategic sense. Perhaps we talked about this on a previous episode back in November, but, you know, I think when you look at the results of the election where, you know, Biden won Uh, the popular vote by millions of votes, but then the Dems ended up losing seats in the House. What that effectively means, or what what it has to mean, is that there were people that voted Dem at the top of the ticket, and then they voted for Republican candidates down ticket. And it seems to me the Democrats were directly giving people permission to do that, because they were saying, oh, it's not the Republican Party that's the problem. It's that's been, you know, hijacked by these extremists or whatever. So on its face, you know, this idea of like, let's make the Republican Party where QAnon, you know, kind of seems like an improvement on what they were doing before. But uh, the the thing I just quoted, which was from the DCCC's new chair, Sean Patrick Maloney, I think really suggests that this is not any kind of a break with the past. I just want to read it again here. They can do QAnon or they can do college educated voters. They cannot do both. So they, they can do the good voters or the bad voters. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, this is so emblematic of mainstream Democratic thinking and the way that liberals, I think, over the past two or three decades have really come to think about politics, right? You know, this is something I've written about elsewhere. Uh, it's something I wrote about in relation to uh, the West Wing, among other things. Things, right there's this overriding belief that the big schism in politics is not one between you know the left and the right it's not one between any kind of you know competing values and interests anything like that uh, certainly not competing classes that have divergent interests the main axis of political contestation is you got smart people who go to the good schools and have the good degrees and then you got you got the dumb rubes. So what's incredible about this is how this is the Democrats, I mean, basically leaning in to the Republican caricature of what the Democrats are, right? This is what the two sides of the culture were. On the one hand, you have this increasing, like increasingly getting ever more reactionary right wing that does this kind of pseudo populism of saying, you know, those guys on the other side, they're just a bunch of snooty elites. They're staring down at you from their ivory tower, uh, from their cloistered world world at you know harvard and yale they're the party of wall street uh they don't respect people like you the real americans etc and for the past few decades the standard democratic response to that has been why yes absolutely we're the party of smart educated people not the dumb not not the deplorables that voted for uh, for the other guy 
And, uh, you know, as various people have pointed out, of course, this is not even true, right? I mean, the reverence for obtaining certain educational credentials, the idea that that is some kind of inoculator against stupidity or whatever is absurd, as, as really, I think anybody who spent a significant amount of time at a university, you know, knows this. You meet all kinds of brilliant people. Uh, you also meet all kinds of uh, non-brilliant people who are able to speak the language of a particular field well, or perhaps who are very good at their chosen field, but are kind of clueless about lots of stuff in general. I would say both those describes me. <laughs> It's also just not the case that low levels of education account for something like QAnon. I mean, for one thing, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene quite literally has a BA. As Corey Robin pointed out, you know, a demographic, uh, there's a tweet of his I'm quoting here, a demographic analysis of the Capitol Hill rioters says that many of them, quote, work as CEOs, shop owners, doctors, lawyers, IT specialists, and accountants. So apparently the GOP can do both, meaning, you know, the GOP can get college-educated voters and non-college-educated voters. That's the brilliance of culture war, right? Is that it helps you lump groups of people like this together. So just something very emblematic of the modern Democratic Party. It really is incredible how they take this stuff. Like even something like this that initially, you know, just based on kind of the headline and the general thrust of it, initially appears to kind of be a break from type. When I first saw that yesterday, I glanced at it and I thought, oh, that's interesting. So like maybe they're going to actually try to, you know, make the Republican Party wear some of the stuff. You know, the mainstream Republican Party, mainstream conservatism wear some of this stuff. And then, you you know, you read it in detail and it's like, nope, they're just putting a new paint job on, the, you know, the same basic strategy and doubling down on their own strategy, the one they've been building for decades of really breaking up the New Deal coalition and, re- and replacing it with a vanguard of kind of white collar professionals and with the kind of totems of, you know, Silicon Valley and Wall Street and putting those things in the driver's seat. And actually, uh, I think shortly after this episode comes out, I'm going to have a, a new piece out that's, uh, that's related to all this. So uh, so look out for that. So the Republicans can then either distance themselves from QAnon or they can do what they always do, which is fully embrace it and say, yes, we are QAnon. And even if there are some things on there that aren't true, you got to start looking at Bill Clinton. And then it'll backfire on the Dems. <laughs> so there was just uh, one other political thing I wanted to look at before we get to our, uh, our our super fun movie for the day. And it actually kind of is related to what we were just talking about. And it's this piece in the San Francisco Chronicle that came out this week. Now, I'm assuming that most people listening to this are familiar with what I'm talking about. But basically, this was sort of the highest level version of the like Bernie Sanders wearing mittens and, and a coat and being turned into a meme at the inauguration is white supremacy it's you know it's it's privilege manifest yada yada you know the kind the kind of take that you regularly see on twitter but i think it's safe to say is less regularly given a platform in a major newspaper now i don't want to belabor a conversation about this because i think most of what needs to be said about about it has already been said by others but there was a line in the piece that i absolutely cannot get out of my head so so much of the piece is concerned with discussing with great reverence the sort of regalia and opulence of the inauguration day and it's kind of you know the author she's kind of listing off you know these different things all of the you know wonderful clothes and this you know radical celebration of inclusion and tolerance and like other other nonsense like that and then there's something about there's like a running list and then one of the things mentioned is the color of their educational degrees i cannot get the phrase the color of their educational degrees 
out of my head. This is one of the things that to this person was most notable about the inauguration, right? The credentials of the people on stage and also the color of their degrees, which I'm not sure even in context reading that paragraph, um, I quite understand what was being said. But I think if you revisit that piece, and they, they actually read the whole thing on a recent ep- on, on the most recent episode of Chapo Trap House, I'm not going to read from this. But if you read it carefully, I think it's quite exemplary of the way that in the hands of, you know, rich people, the lexicon of social justice justice is so easily kind of deployed as what it what is in effect just a language of sort of upper crust propriety and etiquette. In this case, I think that, you know, this is one of the most kind of overt cases. You know, you read the piece and it's, you know, abundantly clear that what she's really mad about is that Bernie Sanders disrupted the kind of symbolic aura of this. Like this was, this was this celebration of all of the values that, you know, at least the liberal part of the American ruling class holds kind of most dear. And here was Bernie Sanders, like, not playing along, wearing his big coat, he's got mittens, and, and you know, obviously she didn't put it this way, but I mean, I think, I think you can read between the lines, and, you know, one of the reasons that image of Bernie, I think, went so viral is because it was actually a moment of authenticity, genuine authenticity, amidst something that was just completely staged and, and, and incredibly, uh, you know, incredibly contrived. And that really, really disturbed the writer of this piece, clearly. So I don't know, I thought the piece, it's a rare example of just, you know, that kind of artifice of like feigned, you know, social concern that's emblematic of this genre that the artifice was just kind of pierced. It actually reminded me of a piece that appeared, I think, in the Wall Street Journal back during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. I don't know if you remember this one, but the crux of the piece, you know, it's basically kind of like a a pro Brett Kavanaugh piece. But then the the sort of main argument, one of the arguments it was making was like, well, Justice Kavanaugh is great. You know, actually, he gave my daughter a really big articling opportunity, like at Yale or something like that, right? And what was so amazing about that is just like the puncturing, you know, again, the the breaking of the artifice, right? Just the overt admission, like not even really covering up the fact that like what this is about is just nepotism. It's like, well, he did me a solid. You know, he used his his ivory tower perch, uh, his perch in the legal profession to do, you know, me and my family a solid. So now I'm returning the favor when he's facing this very serious accusation. Another great example of kind of artifice breaking. I'm always on the lookout for pieces like that. Um, and I thought the uh, San Francisco Chronicle one was maybe one of the highest contributions uh, to the to the form. This may just be a matter of perception, but actually what struck me about the Bernie Sanders mittens thing is uh, there, there were fewer of those takes that I expected to see. Those, oh, this is white privilege. This is white supremacy on display. You know, this is a disrespecting a historic moment for so many people. I saw fewer of, of those those takes than I thought I would have. And maybe that's just perception. Maybe, though, it's because I think Sanders is seen by a lot of people as less of a threat. Maybe because attacks like that aren't quite as effective or people aren't as afraid of them as they were two or three years ago. Which is not to say, though, that I don't think that the language of social justice won't continue to be weaponized by the establishment. I mean, I'm concerned about how protest of any kind under a Biden administration is going to be reported as... It's extremism now, just extremism. That's the umbrella term for everything now. Well, it's, yeah, it's either domestic (laughs) terrorism or it's going to be irrelevant privileged bros who don't know how (laughs) politics works. And that's going to be both of them. You know, Black Lives Matter is going to be the extremism and everything else is going to be irrelevant privileged bros. (laughs) 
So, you know, as I said, I, I don't I don't know if Bernie Sanders is quite as potent a lightning rod for some of that uh, rhetorical strategy as he once was. But I, I do think that strategy will continue to morph and evolve and uh, reappear in different guises. I agree. And it's it's only going to grow more and more like absurd and grotesque. Just you wait. Speaking of absurd and grotesque, today we will travel again back to the mid 2000s to talk about a culture war of a different kind. I'm talking about Billy Mitchell versus Steve Wiebe. And uh, we're talking about The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters from 2007. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. I play video games. It's a constant drive to be the best at something. When you want your name written into history, you have to pay the price. The fact of the matter is, Bill is the best classic arcade gamer of our era. I've probably seen Steve with tears in his eyes more than any other guy I know. Oh, he's just come up short in a lot of things in his life, and I just think nobody wants to do that all the time. Donkey Kong, without question, is the hardest game. That's a tough machine. People think that the machine is possessed. The average Donkey Kong game doesn't last a minute. It's absolute brutality. So if you haven't heard of this film, I mean, it's on YouTube, actually. Go out and watch it right now. It's only, it's a trim, you know, 79, 80 minutes, something like that. Uh, It is a documentary about one of the most absurd subjects you could possibly imagine, the world of competitive uh, 1980s arcade games, and specifically the original Donkey Kong game where you play as Mario. I think it's the first uh, the first game where Mario appeared. So it's about this this kind of a strange and esoteric and hyper competitive milieu. It's full of these absurd characters uh, and yet uh, it's a movie with incredible dramatic stakes. It's a movie that I'm I'm going to be a little cringe for a second and say, you know, I actually found this is my third or fourth time watching it. And I still find it genuinely quite moving. I find it very gripping. I think that the central conflict in it uh, has a tremendous amount of power, even though, you know, it's a, it's basically just these two guys, uh, Billy Mitchell and Steve Wiebe, who are competing for to be the King of Kong, to have the highest Donkey Kong score. It is actually kind of a, a universal tale. You can read it in many different ways. You can read it as a tale about... Uh, how cliques form, how small groups of people will, will exclude others for the pettiest and most trivial reasons. It's a story about the dangers of celebrity and how celebrities, even micro-celebrities, Donkey Kong champions, podcasters, the like, how they can become bigger than the organizations that are supposed to oversee them. They can become too big to fail. And it's also a story about entrenched establishment power, which in this case takes the form of Twin Galaxies, a venerable website that acts as a sort of scorekeeper for the competitive gaming community. This is a website so reliable, so respected, that the Guinness Book of World Records relies on them for information. It is run during the time that this movie was made by a man named Walter Day. And there's also a network of volunteers who are in charge of watching. That, that's right, sitting down and watching people play these arcade games, sometimes in person, but oftentimes recorded on videotape that are submitted. We see one guy who is showing us boxes and boxes of videos from around the world that have been mailed to him that are just 
records of them sitting by their full-size arcade games breaking world records and these people sit and they watch them from beginning to end to make sure that there's been no funny business no digital manipulation yeah okay so this is another thing that's amazing about this film it really shows the the limitless possibility uh, and complexity uh, found in these micro communities even when you know they're based around the most trivial things the amount of expertise that the people in this film have about these games you know the guy that Will was just talking about you know he's this Twin Galaxies kind of record keeper and and referee yeah he sits there in his room and he's doing this unpaid pro bono work where he watches you know sometimes just days worth of footage and the film goes into a lot of detail about you know the kind of things he's looking for like he's trained himself to notice kind of any glitch in the tapes because you know this is a very competitive world and people as you discover do actually cheat and you know i would find it easy to laugh at him for devoting so much of his life to just watching other people play video games but on the other hand like it's moving in a way that he cares so much oh man he he loves his job so much he's like you know some people they get to you know track records at the olympics but those are those only happen every four years i'm here every day i get to see history being made or whatever and yeah like a lot of the character well like most of the characters in this film he's a very silly character he's pretty absurd but he's skilled he has trained himself to really find the glitches and he must be like in his own way a real expert in gameplay because he's studied it you know one of the things they do to verify at this organization is they actually look physically inside the machines they take out the like computer chips and they look at the circuitry to see if you know there's been any tampering and we'll we'll tell you kind of what the plot is uh in a moment but another thing that kind of commanded my respect uh when it came to the people in this movie, absurd as many of them are, is my own kind of recent, uh, you know, I guess during COVID, you know, I've never been, you know, much of a gamer, but uh, periodically I will have these kind of deep dives into a game. Sometimes I'll do research on on a game, different games for weeks before I decide like, all right, I'm going to undertake, you know, this is going to be the next, my next mountain <laughs> or whatever. Like after I finish the day's writing, this is how I'm going to relax. And, you know, something that I played recently was this game Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, uh, which is this like shinobi kind of samurai game widely understood as one of the most difficult games ever. It was so difficult that for the first few days I was playing it, really for the first few weeks, I regularly thought I need to give up. It's a game where you are constantly dying and every death kind of sets you back. There's an ailment that spreads to the NPCs in the game the more you die, and then it makes the game even harder. So the more you fail, the easier it becomes to fail. And, you know, inevitably, I turn to this community online of people who have tried to master this game. And I spent endless hours into the utterly useless and yet inexplicably very satisfying task of like mastering all the different sword techniques and strategies, you know, in order to get through like the different parts of this game, beat the bosses. Some of the bosses took, I'm not kidding, like 200 attempts. And just as we learn about Donkey Kong in this movie, you know, Sekiro is a game that once you kind of master certain patterns, these bosses that seem absolutely impossible, once you've kind of figured, once you've kind of cracked the code, you know, it really becomes kind of like a dance and you can basically beat them every time or almost every time. Anyway, I spent an awful lot of time playing Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, and I did not beat the Demon of Hatred at the end, but I did beat Ishin the Sword Saint, who's the actual final boss. And, you know, a lot of people say he's the hardest. So... 
I could have beat the Demon of Hatred uh, if I'd have tried. And uh, one day I will try. Anyway, this particular experience with this game specifically, I think just because it was so hard and it took such a long time, kind of gives me a grudging respect for a lot of the people in this movie. Whether they're trying to get, you know, the highest score on Missile Command or uh, or Mrs. Pac-Man or uh, Donkey Kong Jr. or whatever. I now have a respect that I think I didn't have maybe the last time I saw this movie for just like the simple pleasure of trying to master something, even if it's completely pointless and like learning all these kind of micro techniques in order to do so. I'm embarrassed to say, but I was genuinely proud of myself. I was so happy when I defeated the final boss in this game, you know, and I had nobody to I had nobody to share it with. As far as I know, there is no Twin Galaxies-like organization for beating bosses in Sekiro, you know, for keeping records of that. Well, you have Michael and Us Nation <laughs> listening to you right now, so... Yeah, please uh, praise my, uh, my achievements, everyone. Well, I don't know a lot about that game, but over the past 32 years of my life, I have become, I would say, the Billy Mitchell <laughs> of Super Mario World for Super Nintendo. Uh, I'm a master. You know, I can beat it in, you know, just a couple hours. I know all the secret levels. Sorry, which one is Super Mario World? Is that the... Oh, so it's the Super Nintendo one. That's right, Super Nintendo. I can uh. still feel with my, with my hands the way the buttons feel under my fingers <laughs> as I fucking annihilate another Goomba. <laughs> but look, we're not here to talk about me and my achievements. We're here to talk about <laughs> Billy Mitchell, who is the Barry Bonds of this universe. He is the Wayne Gretzky, the Babe Ruth. He is a restaurateur and a hot sauce mogul by day. Uh, but in the early 80s, he became the symbolic figurehead of competitive arcade gaming. If I have all this good fortune, if everything's rolling my way, if all these balls have bounced in my favor, <laughs> there's some poor bastard out there who's getting the screws put to him. <laughs> no matter what I say, it draws controversy. It's sort of like the abortion issue. If you're for it, you're a son of a gun. If you're against it, you're a son of a gun. Uh, I'm not God. I don't have all the answers. So I have to be careful how I share my opinions. Ah, world record headquarters can help you he is one of the greatest characters in film history incredible i don't know how else to describe incredible. him straight out of a ricky gervais or christopher guest comedy he's got a goatee and he's got a mullet and a visage of like the purest malevolence <laughs> and he's got a variety of american flag <laughs> ties that he wears one of his ties has the Statue of Liberty on it. And one of the most arrogant creatures that the camera has ever captured. <laughs> but he has been the biggest fish in this pond for over 20 years at this point. Okay, so this is something else I like about this movie is I feel like it actually, you know, it came out in 2007. And, you know, many of the events it's capturing happened before that. But I feel like it is such a kind of prescient look at a type of micro celebrity that is much more common now than when it was made. And also just the sort of unearned swagger that comes with, you know, a certain kind of micro celebrity. Billy Mitchell is like, you know, every person who like, I don't know, starts like an Instagram account and tells a bunch of like stupid jokes and then, you know, parlays it into a TV appearance, which becomes a book deal or whatever. Somebody that no one has re actually heard of has not really put out anything that's, you know, socially useful, but just like thinks they're the absolute shit because they have some like tiny community that, uh, you know, that reveres them. Oh, gosh, I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's, 
he also reminds me he's even more kind of u- universalizable as a villain because he's not just a very typical sort of micro celebrity villain he's also as you said you know uh, the king of the smallest hill kind of villain I mean, certainly for me, I associate with certain kind of workplaces. This is a digression, but I think it's a worthwhile because this kind of informs one of the, the main ways I see Billy Mitchell. As longtime listeners to the show will know, uh, I uh, have done a series of kind of dead-end uh, minimum wage jobs back in the day, one of which uh, was at a restaurant uh, where I was a, a line cook. And I remember there was this guy that worked in the restaurant. He wasn't like a head chef or sous chef or anything. I mean, he was literally just another line cook, but he'd been lo- he'd been there longer than uh, a lot of the other people. There's a lot of turnover in this place because, you know, it was very hard work and you're making, I don't know, $7.50 an hour or whatever the minimum wage was at the time. This guy kind of carried himself with this certain authority uh, that was really unearned and I don't think anyone had really given to him. And he, he, used to, he used to say stuff like about how he was like fifth in overall seniority and stuff, which was like not a real thing that existed. But because of the kind of swagger that he had and because he was also often responsible for, he was like sort of the de facto most senior person who was like the last person in the kitchen kind of often late into the night. You know, these shifts would go on late into the night with people coming in and ordering nachos and that kind of thing. He kind of used this status, which he would basically sort of invented for himself to just get out of all the sort of menial tasks. So a lot of the job towards the end of each shift was just cleaning because the kitchen would be filthy. And he would just go and sit at the bar and like drink a glass of red wine and eat a steak uh, that he'd cook for himself. And then he would he would come into the kitchen and he'd sort of point at like different parts of the floor and he'd be like, oh, uh, was that a was that a pre-mop that you just did? Oh, uh, oh, well, hmm. It looks like you're gonna have to do it again. Just a tyrant of the absolute pettiest kind. And I mean, I guess he didn't really have many admirers. So he he's not like Billy Mitchell in that respect. But an example of, uh, you know, a particular type of character that we've all we've all met uh, one person like this. If you've ever worked an election day scrutineering a polling station or something like that, you've also definitely met this character in the form of people who have a lot of power for a day. I just got a flashback to a kid that I knew when I was uh, literally about 10 years old who was the best kid on my hockey team. Far and away, consensus choice, best player. And uh, I hated that kid so much. (laughs) And I don't know if I could like describe to you the swagger of this 10-year-old as he was in the change room. (laughs) Yeah, Joe fucking Sackick over here. (laughs) His Walter Gretzky wannabe father, you know, egging him on. And what a snotty little kid he was. I don't know. And this was like like house league you were playing, presumably, right? Yeah, and I mean, I I don't follow (laughs) hockey all that closely. I don't think he actually made it to the big league. See, yeah, the Mario Lemieux of like the, uh, you know, Etobicoke House League. But so to return to the film, I mean, so basically, you know, Billy Mitchell, there's this big tournament uh, that I guess Time Life magazine, uh, it had its kind of imprint back in the 80s. And so Billy Mitchell sets this record on Donkey Kong, which is something like, you know, it's 880,000 or something like that. And that record stands for 20 years. And uh, having established this record and and sort of being the undisputed champion, not just of this game, I think also of Donkey Kong Jr. and a few other things, you know, this organization, Twin Galaxies, kind of springs up around this guy, and he's really the figurehead. You know, there are other people that have... Uh, records and they're kind of a part of it or you know are very gifted uh, at these arcade games but you know he is the undisputed kind of maestro and you know it's funny uh, an ecosystem emerges around him to the point where like one of his chief rivals 
back in 1983 is now like his underling. He's the Lou Ferrigno to his Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes, I was thinking about that that scene in Pumping Iron where Arnold is just like <laughs> negging Lou Ferrigno or whatever. Because, uh, yeah. yeah, that guy, he showed up to this Time Life tournament to, you know, crush Billy Mitchell and, you know, got something like 200,000 points, right? Like just at, Billy Mitchell got to, you know, 600,000 points on his first man in the game or something like that. Um, and then, yeah, years later, you see this guy talking and he's just like, Billy Mitchell made me a better person. You see Billy Mitchell and he's like, he's the person that he is today because of me. <laughs> like just with this this epic smirk on his face. And the other guy basically seems to buy that. Like Billy Mitchell has owned him so hard 25 years ago. <laughs> and, you know, may- maybe there's some truth to that. Maybe he did learn a lesson in humility from being around Billy Mitchell. <laughs> uh, although he seems to have become the Renfield to his Dracula. So it probably wasn't all that positive. But also there's another character called Brian Koo, who is Billy Mitchell's appointed protege. Well, Billy Mitchell's the champion. I guess that makes me the prodigy. You know, it's not going to get any easier. Uh, so we, we may have an exciting moment here, uh, or, uh, you know, the, the pressure may get to him. One of those random elements might happen. Uh, sounds like he just cleared another board, but we could have a wild barrel or some aggressive fireballs. I thought I was going to be the first fun spot kill screen, uh, and then I had, I had three fireballs trap me. I had the hammer in my hand. They still got me. Uh, so anything can happen in Donkey Kong. So uh, for someone else to beat me to the kill screen would be a letdown, but let's see what happens. Maybe he'll maybe he'll crack under the pressure and maybe I'll get my chance to do it first. He's a younger gamer who harbors hopes, I think, of one day beating Billy Mitchell's record or at least being the first person to make it to the Donkey Kong kill screen, which, by the way, is very few people have made it to the Donkey Kong kill screen. That is the last level. It runs out of RAM and the screen just like disintegrates. Mario dies on screen. He falls upside down and then the game ends. So if you can, if you make it there, you're in the very chosen few. Anyway, Brian Koo is his young little henchman on the ground who's always on the phone with Billy Mitchell giving him updates about uh, attempts to usurp his crown. Uh, but but also, he is the Eve Harrington to Billy Mitchell's <laughs> Betty Davis, you know? Like, he, like he wants to usurp the crown. <laughs> the film kind of sets up this whole dynamic. Billy Mitchell is the undisputed, you know, King of Kong. Uh, and then we meet uh, the film's other major character, uh, who we'll mention before, Steve Wiebe. Now, Steve Wiebe is really the diametric opposite of Billy Mitchell in every way. He's a kind, mild-mannered guy, seems like a good dad. He's a science teacher by day seems like a good teacher as well someone very well liked by his students at one point in his life he was laid off and he he decided to rebound from that by trying to beat this record the billy mitchell record on donkey kong there's an incredible scene in the film he's taping himself he's doing his world record breaking attempt and he's on course to get there and then his son starts like screaming and this is like all in the tape the twin galaxies had to review son is screaming like dad come wipe my butt like stop playing the game whatever (laughs) and he's like okay I I will in a minute sport I'm just I'm just I'm gonna break the world record check it out amazingly he does beat the record and this is where things really take an incredible turn and why this film is absolutely amazing because right away the gaming establishment at twin galaxies 
the locus of institutional power in the world of the hyper- DNC. <laughs> if yeah, you the, will. D- the DNC of, of hyper competitive 1980s arcade gaming. <laughs> they step in and they will not uh, they will not accept this. Um, even though he's filmed it, they don't think this uh, this counts as a record. So when he's not home, two guys actually like two like twin galaxies thugs basically <laughs> show up to his house and they knock on the door and they you know his wife tells him I'm really not comfortable letting you come in uh, and look at the machine in the garage because they're like demanding to to look at the machine. She's like I have to go out or something. Steve will be back. Just wait. They don't wait for Steve to come back. They go into the garage without asking and they start taking apart his machine uh, and like taking photos of the circuitry and stuff like that. Basically, Twin Galaxies decides that this record doesn't count. Uh, And Billy Mitchell himself is instrumental in kind of creating this new standard around what counts as an attempt. The organization, it seems to this point, has actually accepted these uh, world records that are submitted by VHS tape as long as they can verify. And we talked about that guy whose job it is to verify them. And yet they don't accept this because it's too much of a threat (laughs) to their figurehead, Billy Mitchell, which the whole organization has been built up around. So then uh, Steve Wiebe agrees to fly across the country to a place called Funstop, which is a place where a lot of competitive gaming happens. It's the Madison Square Garden of competitive <laughs> yeah, gaming. Yeah, the, the Carnegie Hall of being really good at Donkey Kong. There's another subplot here, which is absolutely incredible, which is another reason Twin Galaxies doesn't regard Steve Wiebe's world record as legitimate. is because he has this association with a guy called Ray, who has a feud with Billy Mitchell going back decades and with Twin Galaxies because they won't recognize uh, his score on, on Missile Command. We see some videos from this guy. He's pretty weird. He honestly kind of looks like a sort of proto-PUA-type like PUA type character. Very strange guy. Uh, but basically, he's offered to support Steve Wiebe in this endeavor. He actually has sent Steve Wiebe a Donkey Kong cartridge, a Donkey Kong cartridge or perhaps a, a full Donkey Kong machine because he knows Steve Wiebe's good and he wants Steve Wiebe to take down Billy Mitchell. And this was ultimately the source of why Steve Wiebe's record was invalidated because there was question of did this did this guy uh, mess with the machine in some way? Right. And because they when they broke into his garage, they found like a... A, a parcel that had uh, this guy's address on it so this is like an early example of like cancel culture like guilt by association type stuff that you know is now now happening daily on uh popular website twitter.com so anyway steve Weeby, he's a guy that you know we get the sense he's actually failed at a lot of things in life he was really good at baseball and then you know he choked in you know the big game uh back when he was a teenager you know he was actually it seems possibly kind of a good uh musician in seattle when he was a teenager he had kind of a, a band that people liked but he was incredibly diffident about it for some reason he just kind of lacks confidence whereas you know billy mitchell is the antithesis of this because you know he's all confidence and swagger but steve Wiebe decides that he's going to go to this place fun stop and he's going to try to set a record in person and this is where we get this incredible scene that will refer to that which is i think maybe my favorite scene in the movie which is this scene where this guy is watching him uh and is, is actually quite hostile to him i mean they keep talking to him while he's playing and it sort of seems like they're trying to distract him so he'll fuck up well in fact he, he even says that as much this is brian Koo, who is billy mitchell's protege and he says something that also reminded me of pumping iron he says to the filmmaker you know uh, we, sometimes you, you have to play mind games sometimes you kind of have to get in their head <laughs> you know it'd be a real shame if he uh, choked under the pressure wouldn't it <laughs> so this guy brian Koo, is not only defending billy mitchell but he also wants to be the first guy to get to the donkey kong kill screen or not the first guy but like the second or third guy you know 
he wants to get to the Donkey Kong kill screen before Steve Weeby does. So he starts going around the whole arcade and saying to people, oh, uh, by the way, there's a Donkey Kong kill screen coming up. If you want to come over and watch it, we're probably going to get to a Donkey Kong kill screen. You know, he gets a whole audience. Yeah, and there's this massive crowd of people watching Steve Weeby, which is clearly designed to, like, put pressure on him. Steve Weeby's reception here is absolutely incredible. You can see how Twin Galaxies, you know, really is a clique. Uh, even though Walter, the guy who runs it, does seem very well-intentioned and quite nice. So Steve Weeby gets this very cold reception. You know, people are talking about talking about him as like this kind of like, you know, he's this exotic figure. It's like, oh yeah, it's this guy Steve Weeby. I mean, yeah, he's, you know, claimed to do amazing things in his garage. So it'll be very interesting to see, you know, what he does now that, you know, he's he's here where, you know, the, the, the big boys play. And uh, something else I liked about this scene is apparently there's all this superstition around the specific Donkey Kong machine at Fun Stop. I guess there's a certain amount of randomness in the game. And, you know, mastering it has to do with, uh, you know, mastering particular patterns. You know, we learn about various strategies, like the fact that you can kind of redirect the barrels by doing little deeks and things like that that allow you to get up to the next level on the ladder. But apparently uh, everybody, including Billy Mitchell, like fears this machine at Fun Stop because uh, there's a level with fireballs and apparently uh, people feel that they're more, you know, ubiquitous on this machine, which like, obviously who the fuck knows if that's true. But I think that's just an example of just like how unbelievably hardcore you can get about absolutely anything, including this. So next, Billy Mitchell does something absolutely like just his most his most dastardly move yet. His <laughs> most his most snidely whiplash play to this point. Steve Weeby actually gets to this kill screen. Everybody applauds. It's this like beautiful moment. The guy from Twin Galaxies, Walter, you know, shakes his hand. They do like a little press conference. Walter goes over. He he puts the score on the website. Steve Weeby is now the, the champion. He's the new King of Kong. But uh, this guy, Brian, is on the phone with Billy Mitchell, who has sent, by way of you know an ally of his called Doris, a cassette tape, a mysterious cassette tape, which it turns out uh, has uh, him getting an even bigger score. So at the zenith of his you know Donkey Kong career, uh, Steve Weeby is, they instantly just, they screen this new tape from Billy Mitchell and Steve Weeby is instantly dethroned. And then we watch Walter and Brian go into their little like command center and instantly remove Steve Weeby's score and put Billy Mitchell back on top while on the phone with Billy Mitchell because, you know, the whole game is rigged. But there's something really fishy about this tape because the score is in the upper left side of the screen. But at one point, midway through the tape, there's some distortion. There are some tracking lines and, and the score jumps behind those tracking lines. This is the kind of glitch that would disqualify any other submission. But alas, because it's Billy Mitchell, there is enough trust that it is allowed. I mean, it's also against the spirit of the standard that Billy Mitchell himself has set, right? The only reason Steve Weeby has to be here is because he di- he submitted a tape and they're like, oh, it doesn't count if you submit a tape. Billy Mitchell could have shown up to do that score, but instead, you know, he refused. So, you know, he's not even walking the walk. And the organization doesn't care because it's Billy Mitchell. So then after Steve Weeby's dethroned, I mean, this is where I started. This is where I started to find the film moving. We see him being interviewed and he's crying. I mean, it's like they have taken this away from him 
this, you know, in this world anyway, absolutely incredible achievement. And I was rooting for him so hard here. The dramatic stakes that this documentary is able to create around something so stupid are absolutely incredible. Because as soon as I saw that scene, you know, as soon as I saw this, like, kind, earnest man who's trying his best, just broken by, like, the iron hand of institutional power at Twin Galaxies... I thought, you know, I'm rooting for Steve so hard. He he has to win this. Well, because it's not just about Donkey Kong. It's about being the best at something. It's about your life amounting to something. <laughs> it's, it's about being good at something in a life that has constantly told you that you're second rate at everything. But we join Steve Wiebe again nine months later when he is more or less reconciled to being second rate at everything. In the intervening months, Guinness has announced its partnership with Twin Galaxies, that a select number of classic game high scores will be printed in the annual record book. And this blows on the barely dimmed embers in Steve Wiebe's soul and gets him back to the garage training like Rocky <laughs> to fight another day. So finally, in the last act of the movie, Steve Wiebe shows up once again in person to play and this time he finds himself in the same room as billy mitchell okay this sequence is incredible because basically it's like a four-day tournament and billy mitchell just refuses to show up like his whole thing having been like oh yeah you, you got to come and do this in public steve Wiebe flies three thousand miles to compete in this tournament which is 10 miles away from billy mitchell's house right this is how this is how entrenched billy mitchell yeah, is <laughs> yeah yeah it's like they're literally having the tournament you know within like a you know five minute drive or 10 minute drive of his house or whatever but he then refuses to show up there's this incredible scene where steve Wiebe and a friend of his show up at this restaurant where all the others are eating and one of the guys is on the phone with billy and he's like okay yeah steve Wiebe and someone else just showed up uninvited we didn't know they were coming and you see them and they're like sitting off to the side like they're like the uncool kids in like your high school cafeteria or whatever just being needlessly shunned by all these like competitive arcade players and then in, a, in an absolutely incredible sequence billy mitchell does show up finally as steve Wiebe's playing they have never i don't think to this point actually met in person he just kind of lurks around does not compete and then uh he leaves again now steve Wiebe does not pull it off uh, he chokes under pressure. It is so incredibly sad. But his showing up and proving himself, he does nevertheless get a very high score, is enough for Walter and the organization to recognize him as one of the great talents in competitive gaming. And Walter, after the tournament, sends him a letter, which is read out loud in the film, that's basically an official apology for the way the organization has treated him. Now, the addendum here is that Twin Galaxies, having been sort of caught out being less than ethical, also starts accepting tapes again. So uh, Steve Wiebe, in fact, is able to set the record via tape and is once again given his rightful place as the King of Kong at the end of the movie. The mysterious player from the West Coast, Steve Wiebe, is here. He could beat it if he... He'd have to have a really good game. You want to put a score up, you're competing against everybody in the world. It's not even about Donkey Kong anymore. He's a very devious person. He works things out to his ends very well. Well, Billy Mitchell always has a plan. So that's the happy ending of the film. You will not be surprised to know that in the 15 years since most of these events were filmed, there has been much development in the story. Billy Mitchell and Steve Wiebe 
essentially uh, tag-teamed the title of King of Kong for years afterwards, uh, taking the record from each other over and over again, sometimes playing in public even. Eventually, they were defeated by somebody from Japan. I I believe there's a new record holder who was crowned this year, but there have been some interesting developments in Billy Mitchell's story. Luke, you sent me a a really fascinating YouTube video, which I watched half of, and it was already getting a little intricate for me. But essentially, the close relationship between Billy Mitchell and Twin Galaxies started to crumble because Walter Day, the founder, retired and Uh, The new regime, Twin Galaxies, no longer had the same emotional relationship with him. And honestly, I would imagine that, like, Billy Mitchell started to become a liability for this company, right? Yeah, definitely. And yeah, so there have been a number of developments, and I did just want to shout out um, this YouTube kind of short documentary. It's about 20 minutes long. It's called A King Conquered, and uh, the YouTuber who kind of vlogs about gaming and does commentary on gaming really did a a fantastic job on this. If you're looking for uh, sort of more content, if you kind of seen the film and are looking for more, uh, this makes a really great addendum. But so yeah, uh, Billy Mitchell has been completely ousted from this world and actually you know something that uh, came up in this video which you know i haven't verified but uh, you know the guy did seems to have done his research this isn't mentioned in the film but i think it's pretty important he he claims that another youtuber actually acquired documents that show that not only was billy mitchell kind of a you know at the center of twin galaxies just kind of institutionally but he was actually financially supporting it as well He was also like the corporations that donate to like the Democratic Party or whatever. Or like in 2016, when the Clinton campaign had some influence on how money was being spent by the DNC during the primary, right? Yeah, right. It's exactly like that arrangement. But so, I mean, the long and the short of it is that, you know, Billy Mitchell, in addition to just being like an all around villain, also outed as a as an absolute cheater. So basically, Twin Galaxies ended up introducing a new verification system that allowed members in good standing to submit complaints, you know, about a foul play that would would then have to undergo a review process. And a Twin Galaxies member by the name of Jeremy Young did exactly this around several of Billy Mitchell's records. Billy Mitchell had this record that he claimed to have set, been set at the Boomer's Grand Prix Arcade on August 7th, 2010. This record had been allegedly witnessed by a referee by the name of Todd Rogers, uh, who appears in the film and actually was exposed as somebody who uh, had actually fabricated scores himself. So, you know, this couldn't be verified. Twin Galaxies actually ended up doing an investigation, and on April 12, 2018, uh, they released the investigation on their website. It was titled Dispute Decision, Billy Mitchell's Donkey Kong and All Other Records Removed. Uh, This article announced that Billy Mitchell used emulation software to achieve the high score rather than the arcade machine. And as I understand it, uh, there seems to be conflicting accounts of this, but in one place it's claimed that Twin Galaxies doesn't let you submit stuff done via emulation software. Elsewhere, I've seen it claimed that you're allowed to do so but you can't claim you did it in an arcade and use emulation software anyway mitchell was uh, stripped of his records he was banned from submitting future scores and steve Levy was recognized as the first person to score over a million points now and so the scores were then subsequently removed from the guinness world record book as well uh, so the uh, twin galaxies committee that investigated all this actually cited footage from the special features on the king of kong dvd <laughs> as uh, as helping them expose Mitchell as the fraudster that he was. To just kind of add a little more detail to sort of this uh, this epilogue, I want to read a little bit from an article in Variety from April 2018. 
Headline, King of Kong Steve Wiebe speaks out after high score controversy. Seth Gordon's 2007 documentary, The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters, received a bonus life this month thanks to the stripping of antagonist Billy Mitchell's Donkey Kong World Records by independent video game achievements organization Twin Galaxies. Steve Wiebe, who is the protagonist in the documentary, told Variety that being back in the news after 11 years has been surreal. He had heard gamers questioning the authenticity of Mitchell's scores for years, both in person at Kong Off events and online through the Donkey Kong Forum, although there was never anything concrete until James Young recently revealed video evidence. And with Twin Galaxies finding Mitchell had cheated, Weeby finally beat Mitchell. The more I thought about it from the King of Kong days, it all seemed to make sense now, Weeby said. All the things that were happening at the time, like why he didn't come out and play me, and why he was inciting whose records were going to be authenticated and whose were going to be dropped. King of Kong referenced that he was a referee and on the board of directors, and when that leaked out, it all started to make sense. While Weeby is no longer the reigning King of Kong, Robbie Lakeman scored 1,247,700 points this past February, he's now the first player ever to score 1 million points in Donkey Kong. I'm not the champ anymore, but getting recognition for being the first to a million is a great consolation, Weeby said. That's what I was really bummed out about 11 years ago. Weeby said he's not one to dance on graves, and he knows there are still a lot of people who support Mitchell. Billy, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I actually want to pause on that detail because I find it really funny. The fact that he's like this exiled king who still has like a faction of supporters. Yeah, he, he got canceled, but people are still uh, defending him. Billy will have his turn to say something in response. For now, I'm just in awe, Weeby said. Mitchell has not responded to Variety's request for comment. It's also funny that there are just like a lot of people who are still very invested in like the legend of Billy Mitchell, (laughs) the way that some people are for Barry Bonds. So I think similar to how Billy Mitchell is a sort of universalizable antagonist. Uh, I think the film's great power also comes from the fact that Steve Wiebe is sort of a universalizable protagonist. Somebody who's just sympathetic through and through, just seems like a decent guy who is constantly uh, being shafted by the establishment in his particular universe, has to jump through so many hoops before getting recognition. But then, you know, even when he is dethroned, uh, is magnanimous about it because he has an innate sense of fairness, which is the thing that the film shows was denied to him over and over again. Does that remind you of anyone? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we shouldn't be too heavy-handed about this, but I think you all know who uh, who we're talking about. (laughs) Now watch this drive. Member of 